0: easy-to-engage, on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to today's show of the Legendary Leaders podcast. I'm very happy to have you all here today. And obviously, I have lined up a brilliant guest for you again. And today it's Paul Smith. And Paul is an expert in storytelling, in particular storytelling for leaders, And you may say, oh, well, we have heard about your voice, sharing your voice, sharing your story before. And yes, you have. However, today I want you to look at a completely different angle of storytelling, in particular when it comes to the angle of leaving a story and telling a story with impact as a leader. And we will also talk about as a parent. It's really important that we think about how we share stories. What is the goal we are trying to achieve? Why? we want to share stories right what impact do we want to have on other people what is the message we want to convey what's the message that we want to truly land with the audience that can be your children it can be your friends it can be your life partner it can be your team can be anybody around you but stories are impactful and if told well then they will stay with you literally forever. Paul is actually going to share four or five truly inspirational stories here with us today that you can take away, that you can or help you think about your own experiences and how you can use those experiences to tell stories with your environment. Paul is also going to talk about how he came about to become an author of storytelling books. So what led him there after more than 20 years in the corporate world as a successful leader? What were the key factors that helped him make the decision to step out of the corporate world and into this place of um, storytelling, where he's now an author, a storyteller himself, a speaker, a trainer, and so on and so forth. He inspires with his stories. He truly creates and leaves memories and he helps other people reflect and change their views. Paul is nowadays one of the world's leading experts on organizational storytelling and one of Inc Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018. He's the best-selling author of several books, including Lead with a Story, Sell with a Story, Parenting with a Story, and a 20-year former executive at P&G. And his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Times, Forbes, and Fast Company, among many others. We will have the opportunity to listen to Paul, to his story quite intensively. And I would really ask you, to listen to the stories. And once you have listened to the stories, perhaps click the pause button and simply think about how those stories land with you. What do they do with you? What emotions do they bring up for you? And let all of those feelings, those thoughts, those those reflections sink in. And then think about what is the message or what are the messages that you are taking away from those stories? Why is it so meaningful to you? Perhaps take a few notes. All of this will help your learning wherever in the area where you would like to apply more storytelling. So, do enjoy this episode today. It's absolutely fabulous. And I'm so happy that we could win Paul over to join us here today. Enjoy the episode. And I speak to you again in a moment. So, hello, hello, and welcome. And we have Paul Smith here with me. Paul, hello. How are you doing? Kathleen, nice
1: to meet you. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Well, I can't wait to have a chat with you about stories, about your story in particular. I'm very curious, and I'm pretty sure the audience as well, about your personal story, in particular the one uh, that led you from working in organizations to founding your own business and do what you're doing now. So let's start right at the start. What have you been doing in the last 20, 30 years?
1: Yeah. So I, I started my career like uh, a lot of people did. I studied uh, in, in the business world. I studied economics in undergrad. I got a, a master's degree in business. I spent a couple of years as a consultant at what's now Accenture, but I spent 20 years at the Procter & Gamble company mm-hmm. in various jobs and various levels of leadership. And my my last role there was the head of the consumer research department for about a $6 billion global business unit, reporting to the the president of that that very large business unit, a pretty typical corporate career path. But along that way, I just got fascinated with this concept of storytelling. And that kind of frustrated me because nobody taught me how to do that, Mm -hmm. right? So I didn't learn that in business school. They didn't teach me that at Accenture. They didn't even teach me that at Procter & Gamble. And so I kind of went on my own little personal learning journey to figure out how how to do this thing called storytelling. If I wanted to be a better leader, it occurred to me I needed to do this thing. And I just started interviewing leaders I admired who I thought were particularly good at it. I mean, first inside the company, but then outside the company. And along that journey, it just kind of occurred to me that if I wanted to know this or learn this skill that badly, probably other people did as well. So it stopped being my own little personal learning journey and became an idea for a book. And so those interviews, which and at this point, I'm up to three or 400 you know, executive leader interviews, turned into the first book, which is Lead with a Story, which came out almost 10 years ago. And that was the beginning of my exit from the corporate world. That was the turning point that led me into a different direction.
0: Fantastic. You literally just mentioned, hey, I spent uh, 20 years at Procter & Gamble and was responsible uh, for a huge budget there as well. And you said, yeah, I, I was in various jobs. So let's talk about it a little bit more because you did indeed work in various roles. How did you perceive yourself as a leader at that time? Do you still remember?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I spent the first eight or so years of my 20 years at Procter & Gamble in finance roles. And I, you know, I rose up through the ranks of typical thing at P&G of being an analyst first. And then, you know, I was the finance manager of one of our manufacturing plants and then associate director of some department or another. And, but about eight years into it, I, I shifted from finance to consumer research, so a, a, a fairly big change in my functional discipline, yeah. and one that I was not trained in. By the way, I mean, uh, you know, I learned a little bit of market research in in grad school, but not much. And so then went through a number of roles like that to the final role, which is now I think it's a vice president of that business unit um, is the the title of that role. But yeah, so the last job was a you know the last two or three jobs were fairly executive level roles, reporting directly to the president of the organization and leading a large department of my own with multimillion dollar budgets. But it was something that I, I enjoyed, but I didn't love it. I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing that I woke up every morning thinking, gosh, I can't wait to get to work today. And at some point I thought, you know, here I was in my mid forties, I think at the time. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have the kind of job that I really just can't wait to get up and go yeah. to work for. In fact, my, my theory at the time, it's still my kind of theory on most people. I think most people love about 10% of their job. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's why they chose that profession to begin with or whatever. Most people kind of hate about 10% of their job, you know, whether it's office politics or doing your expense report or something, but the big bucket in the middle, the 80% in the middle, I think most people think is, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, I mean, I, I like it. I mean, I wouldn't do it if you didn't pay me, but yeah. you know, it's, it's good work, you know? And, and I just ended up thinking that top 10%, wouldn't it be great if that's all I had to do was that top 10% that I'd love. And so I had to ask myself, well, what is that 10% for me? Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of my my journey because I, to me, I answered it, you know, and I had to think about it a while, but it was, it was the few days a year that I got to either teach a new hire training class within the company or teach a course at P&G's new general manager training college, or give a speech at the annual you know company meeting or so it was essentially being a, a a teacher and trainer and speaker was what i loved to do but there's no job at png that does that full time just out of the 120,000 people that work there at the time there just wasn't and i realized the only people that get to do that full time are people who've written some best selling book and then they travel around the world teaching that topic to a yeah. bunch of different companies so that's when I said, "Well, I, I guess if I really want that career path, I got to write a book." Yeah, <laughs> and so that's did. what I set out to do over the next few years. Yeah, that was that was the the impetus behind writing that first book was that it was to achieve a career change.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, you you were so aware of those eighty percent and the remaining twenty percent on the top and at uh, the bottom, basically. How come? What helped you to be so aware of it? What were I don't know, the practices you applied perhaps. What was it? And that's a good question. I think
1: probably just uh, everybody's aware when they're dissatisfied with something, right? I mean, it weighs on you, (laughs) you know, when you're satisfied and happy, we often don't even recognize it, you know but when we get to the point where you're consciously aware you know, I'm not, I don't really love what I'm doing. Then you start to search for something else, and after twenty years, you know that I, I kind of got there where I was just palpably aware that I was only, you know, okay with my job. Mm-hmm. In, in many senses, I, I, I was, I enjoyed it a little bit, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked my job; I didn't love it, uh, which means I think I was okay at my job, but not great. And I think most people want to be great at their job. And I, yeah. don't, I don't think I was at that point. I think I was okay at it. I think I was average at best. Mm. And nobody wants to, you know, end their career, you know, average <laughs> and mediocrity. You know, I wanted to, in fact, that was one of my criteria that I'd be happy to talk about if you want, but I kind of set for myself, you know, those five criteria that would get me to leave this company. That's been great to me, by the way. I mean, I loved Procter & Gamble, still love Procter & Gamble. I think it's a great company. I had a yeah. wonderful career there. I think many people have a wonderful career there and they, they will you know, forever. So, so it was going to take a lot to get me to leave. And, so I, and one of my criteria was I would only leave to go do work that I was truly passionate about. Like I said, I liked my job at P&G, but I wasn't like really passionate about it. And, and unless I could find something that I was really passionate about, I wouldn't leave. Plus four other criteria, but that was definitely one of them. What were the other four? The second one was was work that I could really excel at, really be good at, like I said, I think I got to the point um, you know I think this happens to a lot of people you, you, you get promoted and promoted and promoted you know un- until the point that you're you know good at your job but not great, and you probably are not going to earn another promotion. You found the place in the organis- that place in the hierarchy that you can be effective, but you're not going to be as effective at the next level and I think I'd reached that level. I think it happens to almost everybody, right? Unless you're the person that ends up being the CEO, I think by definition, it happens to everybody. So I had achieved that level. And so I was, like I said, average at my job. And I, I wanted to be in a place that I could really excel and be great at my job. So that was criteria too, was to find work that I could really excel at. The third one was to do work that I thought, and this is going to sound cliche, but to find work that really made a difference in people's lives. Nobody ever stood up and applauded at the end of one of my budget meetings. you know. (laughs) know, Nobody ever told me that, uh, you know, the the, the work that you're doing is really making the world a better place. But, you know, I get that feedback in the work that I do now, which I can describe later. But that was my third criteria. It was really to make the world a better place. The fourth one was very pragmatic. It had to be work that would support my family. Now, not necessarily work that I would make more money at than I was, but, you know, I wasn't going to go become a charity. I mean, I, you know, I had college funds to build and bills to pay and stuff like that. So it had to, it it had to at least earn a minimum level. And then the fifth criteria, it would have to be an opportunity that my wife was comfortable with. You know, I mean, she's my life partner and I didn't want to go do something that was going to be so risky that it made her nervous. You know, I, you know, she was going to have to support whatever decision I made. So those are my five criteria. And I kind of worked, worked through them all before I made the decision. Mm. To go, which is a whole other journey, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to answer those questions as well. But th- those were the criteria.
0: Brilliant! I, I <laughs> love the structure and the framework that you have developed there for yourself, including the people that are most important to you in your personal environment, but also making sure you consider f- the for you most important factors in order to make. I wouldn't even say the decision, but take the steps to move yeah. towards your goal.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, and recognize what was not on the list because choosing what not to put on the list was was difficult as well. But notice, you know, what was not on the list was a promotion, more money, a better job title, a bigger office. I mean, none of those things were on my list. I was not mm. looking and I had, I had plenty of those things at the time. I wasn't needing more. In fact, I would be comfortable with less of all of those things if it met the five criteria that mm. were important to me.
0: Yeah. I find it um, very encouraging what you are sharing here. Uh, I said it in a few episodes before, I'm personally working with quite a few people. and know people in my environment, basically friends, family, and so on, who are definitely not fulfilled at work, who definitely don't get up and say, I can't wait to go to work, who keep thinking about, should I make any change really? But the one factor that often keeps them back from making that decision to move to with something else. Well, there are two factors. First factor is, what is it going to be? And to really think about it and take your time and get support, right? It doesn't have to happen from one day to another. And the second obstacle is probably, but I have a mortgage to pay. Mm. Absolutely. And you just described how you can still set yourself up for making sure you can pay your bills right? University fees, school fees, and so on and so forth. It's, it's a plan that lies behind that.
1: Yeah. And like you said, it wasn't, I mean, I'd love to be able to tell you this romantic story that I just woke up one morning and, you know, th- with this idea and threw caution to the wind and walked, stormed into my boss's office and quit and walked <laughs> out and, you know, but uh, I, I'm, I'm just I'm a fairly risk averse person. And maybe, you know, most of us are. And so this was a longer process. I mean, once I decided what it is that I wanted to do, I figured out that what that top 10% was, mm-hmm. you know, it was probably five years before I actually left, because mm-hmm. once I figured that out, I had to think about, OK, well, if I want to be a speaker, trainer, whatever, then I got to I got to write a book. Well, what would I write a book about? And I spent a year just thinking about that. And once I figured out what that is, I had to go do all of the research and, and, but I was still keeping my day job. So notice what I didn't do was just go quit my job. Yeah. I did all of this. I, in fact, did all the research, wrote my first book, waited for it to get published, waited for it to be out there a while and start getting phone calls from people. Hey, could you come speak at our annual company meeting or come teach our executives how to be better leaders through storytelling? I waited to get enough of those phone calls and do enough of those engagements to be confident that there was a long-term career for me in this. And that took a year after the book was published before all of that happened. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was taking, you know, vacation days from work to go do these speaking engagements. Mm -hmm. And and at one point I ran out of vacation time, which did not make my wife happy, by the way, and nor should it have. So what I did was I went back to my company. I said, you know what? I mean, I told them what I was doing. There was no secret about it. I said, but I'm still not sure if I want to go do this or not. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if there's You know, going to be enough business for me to continue to pay that mortgage and things like that. I said, I need a number of more months to test market this idea. So I asked for a reduced work schedule from work, which means take an additional 10% of time off for a 10% reduction in my salary. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that gave me, I think an extra 25 days a year to go off and do things, but it cost me, you know, a little bit of my salary. And I was the only person at the company at my level to do that nobody at my level or above did that because you know it sometimes seems a little bit like career suicide to say that oh i'm i'm kind of now i'm part-time i'm working a reduced work schedule it seems like something at junior levels do but senior executives just don't do that well i said i'm gonna do that and my boss has supported me and uh, i did it and, and it turned out those phone calls did continue to happen and so i ended up when i spent all of those 25 days that was my success criteria okay now I can tell that there, are, there is enough business out there for me that this could be a viable career opportunity for me. And that's when I, you know, well, I still needed one step, which I mentioned to you earlier before I <laughs> left, but that was the last logical piece of the puzzle that needed to fall into place for me. And if it didn't, I would have gone back to my boss and said, okay, thank you for that time off. It helped me make a decision that I'm going to stay. So I'll give you that 25 days back. And can, can I have that 10% <laughs> payback? <laughs> you know, and, and we'll just get back to the things the way things were. But uh, fortunately, it worked out the other way.
0: But I would also say you had a very supportive boss. And that's obviously a huge, huge help that someone is so open towards giving you this opportunity. And I I was in a similar position, not with regards to seniority. I was a director at the time and my boss um, was brilliant in terms of giving me the chance to go part-time into a shop uh, shop sharing model and to pursue what I really wanted to do and to explore Mm -hmm. that. I think that's gold. I appreciate that so much still years after.
1: Yeah, having a having a good boss definitely was uh, a key to this success. In fact, I'll, I'm going to give him a shout out right now since you <laughs> asked about it. His name is Kirk Perry. He ended up leaving P and G to become the president of Google and is now the CEO of IRI uh, Information Resources Inc. I think a huge data analysis company. But yeah, he he was one uh, of one of the greatest bosses I ever had, and and, and really you know allowed me to, to to make the right decision for me.
0: Paul, you mentioned there was last one last piece of the puzzle that supported you in your decision. That was a less uh less of a rational piece of the puzzle, more an emotional one, I would call it. But you are the best person to tell that story.
1: Yeah, yeah, there was. So after all of that thinking and planning and five criteria and test marketing, I logically and rationally had wrapped my head around, okay, I I need to leave and go do this for a living. But I was just scared, honestly. I mean, you know, I, here I was, I was, like Mm -hmm. I said, in my mid forties and still had kids at home and uh, sole breadwinner in the family. And so it was just, it was a risky decision to make and I I needed the courage to go do it. So I did something that uh, I think most, a lot of people should do more of. I asked my dad (laughs) for some advice and, you know, he was 80 years old at the time and uh, hard of hearing. So I couldn't call him on the phone and have a conversation with him. So I wrote him an email you know, explained everything I just explained to you and said, I really want to go do this, but I'm just not sure if it's the right decision. Can you give me some advice? And I just assumed that he'd write me back and either either say, absolutely, son, you should go pursue your dream. I you know, fully support it. I, I got confidence in you. Or he was going to say, are you nuts? <laughs> like, are you, like, seriously, just you're, you're 45, keep your head down for another 10 years and, you know, collect your retirement and then go pursue these silly ideas. But like that, you'd be crazy to leave a great job with, you know, great salary and benefits and all that. And he just did neither of those. (laughs) You know, he gave me no advice. All he did was tell me a story about himself when he was five years old. He said, when I was in kindergarten, maybe the first grade, he said, "Uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. He said, I wanted to be a singer. Like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, he, he, he was 80, right? So that was his genre, right? A the Rat pack. pack. Exactly. And so uh, he said, I knew that for sure the first day of that first grade year because the teacher asked all of the students if any of us had any special talent, like, I don't know, magic tricks or dancing or something. And he said, I raised my hand and I said, well, I can sing, despite the fact that he'd never sung in front of anybody but his mom in the kitchen before, right? And so, you know, well, what, do you, what would a good teacher do if the student says that they can sing? What do you think?
0: Well, they let them sing.
1: Well, of course. Well, Bobby will stand up and sing us a song. Yeah. Then. So uh, she invited him to sing a song right there. So five-year-old Bobby Smith stood up right there, a cappella, and belted out his favorite song in front of the teacher in the whole class. Awesome. And he said, I nailed it. He said, I got all the words and all the melody right. And I was so proud of myself. And he said, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. He said, I got a standing ovation, my first time to ever sing in front of an audience. And he said, it turned out that wasn't just the first time I ever sang in front of an audience. It turned out that was also the last time that I ever sang in front of an audience. And he said, uh, you know, life sort of got in the way, you know, I met your mom, we got married and had kids and everything. But the truth is, son, I just never had the courage to go through with it. And he said, there is not a month that's gone by in the last 75 years that I have not regretted that decision. And as if that wasn't enough to convince me to go do this, and it was, I kid you not, he closes the letter with these words. He says, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, tick tock, right? The guy's 80. (laughs) And he just like, uh, you know, I could just feel my heart in my throat at that Mm. point. I mean, he had just laid down this gauntlet in front of me and challenged me to pick it up. And so, and so I did. So literally two days later, I walked into Kirk Perry's office and I resigned from my 20-year career to pursue this dream. And I absolutely would not have done it uh, at least that quickly had it not been for my dad's letter. And so the good news is that uh, that was eight or almost nine years ago. He's now 89 years old and uh, still with us. And he has gotten to see me achieve my dream. And I am still one year away from the age I would need to be to get early retirement from PNG. So I hope he's still here a year from now, but that's a big, that would have been a big risk to take, to, to wait, like uh, like my original, original instinct would have been.
0: I told you last time when we spoke about that story, I found it online, uh, that letter somewhere, and I had goosebumps. But now listening to you, I was just like, didn't know as to whether I'm getting emotional or overcome by, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I have goosebumps literally all over. such an amazing story, such a beautiful note to you. So heartwarming and encouraging.
1: Yeah, and, and I, th- I think the lesson there for not just me, but for everybody is, if you won't pursue your own dream for your sake, do it for someone else, because th- th- there probably is somebody else in your life, whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent, or friend or coworker who wants to see you achieve your dreams almost as badly as you do. Yeah. And if you're too afraid to do it for you, do it for them, you know? So I, you know, I'd like to think I did this uh, almost as much for my dad as I, I did for me. And I, mm-hmm. I think we could all use that encouragement.
0: Ah, it's brilliant that he's still with you and he has really experienced it as well. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this incredibly heartfelt and motivational story. There are a few more stories you can tell, and that's why we are here. We want to talk about stories, in particular the stories leaders tell. And how had storytelling worked for you while you were still at P&G?
1: Early in my career, it didn't at all because I didn't know how to do it, again, mm. which is part of why I embarked on that journey. But yeah, I, I once I kind of discovered the The skill of it and started to hone it, I would start to use it uh, more and more often, Uh, you know, sometimes usually with success, but, you you know, nothing ever works hundred percent of the time and you learn from what you, what you do wrong. But one of the types of stories I learned that works uh, almost every time is a failure story. So as a leader, when, what I mean by failure stories, when you tell people about a mistake that you made, that you personally made at work uh, and, and importantly, the lesson that you learned from it. And the reason that's an important type of leadership story is because people want to work for the kind of boss who's more interested in developing his or her people than they are about protecting their own fragile ego. Mm-hmm. And the reason you would tell a, one of your failure stories is because you want the people you work for to not make that same mistake themselves. So you're giving them the benefit of learning from your experience so that they can avoid those mistakes. You, know, you can't Keep them from making every mistake, but you can keep them from making the ones that you've made (laughs) by telling them these stories. And so, uh, I mean, for example, uh, you know, one of the mistakes I remember making uh, not too early in my leadership career, but somewhere in in the middle, I had just taken a new role uh, as the head of research for a large brand at P&G. And within a few weeks of me being on the job, we were getting close to the end of the fiscal year and my boss, the president of the, the business asked me if I could conduct some of the research we had planned for the next fiscal year, but uh, conduct it this year. And the reason was because she said, we made a lot of profit this year, but next year is going to be really hard. So if you could conduct that research this year, we could expense it this year. And the next year you won't need to spend as much money and it'll just help out our profit situation. So eager to please my new boss, of course, I went to my team and said, okay, folks, can we do this? What, what can we do to help meet the boss's goal? And so everybody came up with some ideas. No, oh, we could do this sooner and we could do that sooner. And I was like, great, let's do it all, do all of those things. And we added it up and it was like a million dollars we could move from, you know, next year's research plan into this year's research plan. And so my team went off to execute it and it was a disaster because they rushed to get everything done. They made a lot of mistakes because they're human. Right. And then they, they forgot to put these questions in the surveys and they didn't check this box and they didn't do that right. And there were some whole surveys we had to call back and do again later. And it was just a disaster. Uh, and that's when I realized the reason I made that mistake of, of asking my people to do something that was going to result in such a disaster was that I didn't realize that I wasn't the only one who had a new boss. They wanted to bend over backwards to please. Yeah. The people who worked for me also had a new boss mm-hmm. that they wanted to bend over backwards to please. And if I just realized that, uh, I wouldn't have asked them to do such an, an undoable task. So you have to recognize as a leader sometimes that you're, you're new and they want to please you just as much as you want to please your boss. So it was, it was a, definitely a learning experience for me. And, and I, I would share that with uh, my up and coming leaders about that mistake uh of course some of them knew about it because they watched it happen (laughs) but the ones that didn't i would tell them that so that they would not make the same mistake that i had
0: yeah and and i do believe there are some additional um benefits to telling fey your stories um as well and like building stronger connection making Mm -hmm. you more human basically sure you're simply a human being so breaking down this barrier between senior leader and more junior leaders, for example. right? The psychological safety aspect, I think, is very, very important here. Other people to speak up and to say, hey, I've made a mistake and it's okay, right? But I share so that other people can learn. I think uh, it's very important here too. Well, I've, I've had an interesting experience again last week and it wasn't the first time that I had that experience. I worked with a bunch of junior leaders and um, they received a project, a business project, and um, in around six months' time, they need to present the business project. Presentation can mean I storytell, I experiment and share the experiment results, whatever it is. But the most important thing is that the message has to land, has to make an impact uh, lessons learned need to be shared, and so on and so forth. So there's no guideline in terms of how you share what you have achieved, what you're trying to do, and so on. The the question I received from every leader was, um, so we're going to do a PowerPoint presentation then, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not joking about that because I have been there as well years and years ago. And I thought, Oh, everything needs to be packed in a PowerPoint. And then I'm literally boring people to death, uh, which my, because my PowerPoints were never really super interesting until you realize that you might need to think about what creates the or what helps the audience to listen fully, what creates attention, curiosity, what helps them take the message you want to convey with them? What creates, you know, conversation, reflection? And it isn't about the PowerPoint presentation, it is about the story. And yet, I would throw out the assumption, and Paul, you are far more of an expert than I am, that in particular, leaders and a lot of leaders still haven't quite grasped the successful concept of storytelling. What, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's true. Although um, for the last 15 or 20 years, there's definitely been a rise in awareness of the fact that storytelling is a leadership skill that leaders need to have. And if there, if there wasn't, there wouldn't be people like me who, who make a living doing sure. it. So the, the awareness is definitely up and it's, it's uh, it's now a skill that I think most leaders, most leaders know they need to, to, to do well at it. What they don't know is that it's a learnable skill that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is people say, well, yeah, I know I should be a better storyteller, but I'm not, <laughs> I just wasn't born, you know, with the gift of gab or something. And so I just, I'll never be good at it. And the truth is storytelling. I mean, it's an art form for sure. It's not a science, but, but you can still learn it just like you can learn to play the guitar or play the piano or to sing, even if you're not a naturally gifted musician, you can still learn those things. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you learn them? Well, you you go read a book, you take a class, you watch some videos, you learn from somebody who knows how to do it. I mean, you you learn it, mm. right? So th- that's the first challenge I think with most leaders is to convince them that, look, this is a learnable skill. You just need to study it like you would anything else that yeah. you wanted to learn.
0: So the question is how to learn it. And if we come back to the failure story, for example, yes, it's, it's great to be able to share failure story but isn't it also about how you share that story? So the question is basically twofold, Mm -hmm. how to learn it and how to share a story to make it truly impactful.
1: I mean, so there are a lot of ways to learn it, just like anything else. You know, uh, you you can read a book. Um, That's why I write the books on the topic. Most people prefer to learn storytelling in a classroom environment because Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a performance art. And so not everything is going to come through from, you know, black and white words on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 need to be in class. And so that's why the, the courses that I've developed are, I don't want to call them performance classes because it's not like, it's not like an acting class, but if you come to one of my storytelling classes, you're going to have to tell a story and you're going to tell it in front of other people right so you you have to you learn by doing so you know we bring people into a a room and we put them in groups and everybody shares a story and each group of five or six people picks one story to be their team story for the whole day and their job is to make that story as awesome as possible by the end of the day using all the techniques that we're about to teach them and then we go through and teach them well what is the structure of a well-told story what are the eight questions your story needs to answer and What are the three techniques to create uh, emotional engagement in stories? And what's the best way to create a surprise ending? And so each of these techniques that I'm teaching, I'll teach it. And then I'll say, okay, now go back to your group and apply that technique to your team's story. You got 20 minutes to go and then they come back and okay, let's cover the next topic. And then you got, all right, you got 30 minutes to go, you know, answer those eight questions for your story. And then you're going to come back. And by the end of the day, okay, let's, let's hear what you came up with. And people get Mm -hmm. to practice delivering their new and improved story. So that's probably a more effective way to learn storytelling than just reading it in a book or watching a YouTube video. But, the, you know, people like to learn in different ways. So I wouldn't dissuade anybody from buying a book or watching videos, but there's no better way to learn something than by doing it.
0: What has been the greatest leadership story experience for you personally? Well,
1: the the most powerful stories that have blown me away are, have not been leadership stories. They've been personal stories and they show up in like books, like my parenting with a story book, they're life-changing stories. And uh, leadership stories are typically about work and work's important, but work isn't life. So work should not be the most important thing in your entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, So the most powerful life-changing story moments I've had have not been with leadership stories. They've been with personal stories. And I can share one of those if you're interested. In yeah, it as well. please. Um, so in in the the parenting with a storybook, obviously I wasn't interviewing CEOs and executives. I was just interviewing people, and I wasn't necessarily interviewing parents either. By the way, so that that book is not. Uh, it's not like I interviewed a bunch of parents about their parenting techniques. Oh well, you know, how do you breastfeed your baby, and how do you change a diaper, and like it's not that kind of book. It's it's a book on character development for children. So it's a set of 101 life-changing stories where somebody learned an important life lesson that helped them build character. And so it's divided into 23 chapters of different character traits that parents typically want their kids to grow up with, like kindness and integrity and hard work and grit and resourcefulness. You know, So if you just list out the character traits that you want your kids to have, it's probably on this list of 23. And what I did was I collected a handful of stories from somebody in the world where they learned that lesson the hard way, and that's just uh, typically a much better way to teach your kids uh, a character trait than just telling them. Well, you know, you you should be kind to strangers. Okay, well, maybe <laughs> you know, but you tell them a story about how you were kind to a stranger and it changed somebody's life. And okay, now I'm motivated to be kind to strangers. So probably my favorite story in that entire book is about a guy named Chad Hymas, who uh, played basketball in high school. In fact, he was the captain of his high school basketball team. And the night before a big game, all the other players were over at his house like they typically do, um, having dinner and talking about the game, the game tomorrow, getting ready for it. And at one point during the evening's conversation, because they're teenage boys, the conversation turned to teenage girls. Okay, not surprising. Uh, But this conversation turned to a particular teenage girl whose name I won't share, but who was uh, handicapped in multiple ways. So she was in a wheelchair Quadriplegic might be the best description, but I think she had some functioning of uh, at least one of her arms, uh, but uh, definitely confined to a, a wheelchair and, and she couldn't speak because of some other malformations in her, her, her vocal cords. So she spoke with a computer, kind of like Stephen Hawking yeah. you know, does famously. And um, so she, she was very visibly challenged in ways that most people are not. And they were talking about her. And as you can imagine, the things they were saying were not very nice. Well, Chad's father was in the next room helping the mom prepare dinner and he could hear the conversation they were having. Mm. And it obviously bothered him. At one point, he just, he couldn't take it anymore. And he, he stormed into the room. He fell down to his knees and he said, I cannot believe what I'm hearing coming out of this room. The things that you boys are saying about this girl just kills me. And he said, but I'm, I'm mostly mad at my son your captain. And at me, because he started this conversation and I'm mad at myself for raising a, a boy who would have these kind of conversations. And then he got up and he walked out of the room. And of course that kind of killed the vibe for the evening. And the boys ended up, you know, leaving in shame. And, mm-hmm. But uh, Chad's father wasn't done the next day at school. Of course, the, at lunch, all the basketball players are having lunch together because that's what they do every day.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, Chad's father walks into the school cafeteria un, you know, a surprise to them. And of course, Chad's eyes get this big and he's like, Oh my God, my dad's here. And he knows, of course, what he's there to do is to continue to chew them out for what they did last night. And his his dad walks over to the table and Chad immediately, you know, starts backpedaling. Oh dad, I'm so sorry. Please don't embarrass me in front of my friends. I know we, we, we won't ever talk like that about her again. Her name was Jenny. I'll just give you a a first name. We won't talk about Jenny anymore. And his dad said, well, uh, I hope that you won't, but uh, I need you and your friends to, to stand up and walk walk somewhere with me. And he said, I'm not leaving until you do. And so they all stood up and he, they walked across the cafeteria to a table where it was almost empty except for one person sitting at it. And of course it was Jenny. And he sat down and he had all the other boys sit down and he introduced himself to Jenny. He had to touch her on the shoulder. So she because oh, she was also blind by the way. Sorry, I missed that part. had to tap her on the shoulder to know that he was present and announce himself. And he introduced himself and his son and the other team members. And he said, I just wanted these boys to get to know you a little bit. And he asked her four questions. He said, uh, how long have you been in a wheelchair? And she had to type her answer out on this computer so that it would talk, right? So mm-hmm. it took a long time for her to answer. So all these answers, the boys had a long time to think about her last answer. So yeah. she types out, my whole life. Mm-hmm. And here are these boys, they spend their days up running up and down a basketball court. Now they're sitting in the presence of a girl who's never walked in her life. The second question was, who's your best friend? And she types out, my mom, which is charming, but it also probably wasn't lost on a bunch of high school boys, what kind of social life she must have to count her mother as her best friend or lack of social life, I should say. The third question was, what does your dad do for a living? And she types out, I don't know who my father is. And the last question was, what do you love to do the most? And this is the one that really counted with the boys. She said, I love to listen to the girls cheering at the boys basketball game. Oh, wow. And so imagine these boys sitting there realizing the girl they've been making fun of all night. loved nothing more than listening, listening. Cause she can't see listening to the girls cheering them on yeah. at every game they played. So as you can imagine, they never made fun of Jenny again, but things changed because you can also imagine the scene it must have created in this cafeteria with the whole entire basketball team and Chad's dad gathered around at Jenny's table. Everybody in school heard about all of this within 24 hours. Jenny was made an honorary cheerleader. She got to wear a dress of the cheerleader outfit in, in her, on her wheelchair and go down. And she actually got to call out some of the cheers for the rest of the Season and they actually ended up (laughs) writing newspaper articles about her. Anyway, Jenny never sat at lunch alone again. Okay, and she, you know, she became somebody that the school loved and embraced. And anyway, it it changed her life. But I, I, my guess is, it changed those boys' lives more for the better. And you know, so I, I think that was in a chapter on kindness to strangers in the book. But the point is, like I said, you can tell your kids to be kind to strangers, or you can tell them a story that will convince them to be kind to strangers. And the main lesson there is, until you get to know somebody, uh, it's easy not to like them. But once you get to know them just a little bit, even by answering, asking four simple questions, it's really hard to not like somebody and to care about them and treat them as a human. So get to know people and you probably will treat them better.
0: I'm so gonna get this book. (laughs) Yeah. How Um, often have you told this particular story, you think? uh,
1: I mean, Less than a dozen. Uh, fewer times than you, you might imagine. But, uh, but yeah, it's probably my favorite in the book. Uh, so so that's, that's the idea, is to teach our children character through stories of people who learned those lessons the hard way. And, and Kathleen, you, you've got two or three stories like this in your head, I'm sure. I've got two or three in my life like this, but nobody's got a hundred. And that was the idea, was interview enough people where I could fill a book with those those monumental life-changing stories that, that everybody's got one or two or three of. Absolutely. I, I, I should also mention as kind of an epilogue to that. So Chad Hymas, uh, the boy, the captain of the squad that that story was about after he graduated high school, he had an accident and he ended up in a wheelchair himself for the rest of his life where he still is today. Uh, and he's actually now a public speaker, a motivational speaker. And he shares that story obviously. And it's, it's one of those profound impacts on him, but uh, also obviously an interesting, you know, life has a way of of coming around in circles. And so uh, uh, he, I guess, prepared himself well for this experience, having had that one in high school.
0: How am I going to follow up on this? How am I going to continue (laughs) that conversation? (laughs) That would be a moment to simply be and reflect and let it sink in, really, and see what you draw from that story. And there was a reason why I asked you, how often have you told that story? Because I could see that it actually made you quite emotional as well. It did something with you, right? Yeah. It, it's it's
1: hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to get mm-hmm. through. Uh, you know, and I, I feel the same way about my dad's story, my dad's letter. I, I've told that story hundreds of times, and I I have difficulty getting through it because it's just that kind of a story.
0: Mm-hmm. So I assume, and and you've incorporated some of the stories in your book that you have shared some stories to your sons as well over the last few years.
1: Yeah, so they were my first uh, guinea pigs, right? <laughs> that I would test market these stories on. <laughs> and if they, the ones that they kind of yawned and you know walked away. Okay, well I'm I'm not putting that one in the book. <laughs> the, the ones that would get them to uh, you know sit still and listen to the entire time, and their eyes would get wide and then they would be contemplative. And I said, okay, that's a winner. I'm going to, I'm going to put that in the book. Yeah. So my kids are basically my first, first line of editor, I guess.
0: And, and have you ever experienced a shift in their behavior, how they see the world um, as a result of your stories that you told them?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember telling them both about um, stories about things that my father had done that changed some of their behavior yeah, well, if I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, one of my first jobs, I worked at the same company where my dad did, and I was so excited. And this was back in the '80s. I was so excited when I found out there was a thing called called Secretaries' Day. It's probably called Administrative Professionals' Day today, but uh, ba- basically, on that day, the bosses had to take their secretaries out for lunch. And I was a secretary. I was a administrative secretarial level employee in my you know teenage years, and uh, my boss was a, a woman. But back in the '80s. It was usually reversed. Usually the, most of the bosses were men and most of the secretaries were women, but I was in a reverse situation. Uh, but I was so excited to go out and have my boss take me out to lunch that day. You know, it was my special day, right? Um, and we all went to lunch at the same place with, with my dad and his administrator and all of the other managers and their secretaries went to the same restaurant for lunch. And um, they, in fact, they knew we were coming. So they, they prearranged two lunch options. One was uh, a club sandwich And one was a quiche Lorraine. Now you may not be old enough to remember this, but back in the early eighties, there was a very popular book that came out called real men don't eat quiche. Um, I forget the name of the author, but it was basically a a tongue in cheek look at the feminization of the American male. It was making fun of, you know, the sensitive, you know, side of of men and Mm. and, and wishing for a more machismo, I suppose. Anyway um, the name of the book was real men don't eat quiche. And so, even if you didn't read the book, everybody had heard the title of the book. So when the waitress was coming around, taking all our orders, none of the men would order the quiche because it would identify them as too feminine, I suppose. And of course, you know, when it came around to me, of course, I very quickly ordered the club sandwich because I'm, you know, 17 years old and very insecure in my masculinity. And so I quickly ordered the club sandwich and it gets around to my dad and my dad says, huh, you know, I've never had a quiche before. (laughs) I don't know if I like quiche. So I tell you what, why don't you bring me a half a quiche and a half a club sandwich? That way, if I don't like the quiche, I, I still got some lunch. Yeah. And the, the abuse started immediately. All the men at the table started challenging my father's masculinity in both profane and clever ways that I'd never heard before. I mean, it was it was humiliating, right, for him, but even more so maybe for me to watch my father be so insulted by all of these men. I'm mean, just I'm slithering down lower and lower into my chair and I just can't wait for the lunch to be over. And now, you know, I was so excited about this lunch and now I'm mortified because my dad's getting insulted by every man at the table. So eventually my dad took all the abuse that he could and he finally breaks down. He calls the waitress back over and he said, uh, I'm sorry. I, I need to change my order. I ordered the half a quiche and the half a club sandwich. I, I need you to uh, take back the half a club sandwich and I need you to bring me the whole <laughs> damn quiche. And the the mouths at the table, like hit the table. Like the people were just shocked, including me. What what just happened? Right. Um, And that moment taught me such a lesson about what it means to be a real man or just a real adult. And that is, you just can't let what people, other people think of you dictate what you do. And so he didn't mean to teach me that lesson at that moment, but boy, he did. And so I, you know, he he leaned into the insult, right? And so I have told my kids that story. And yes, I've seen it change their behavior because, you know, when they get made fun of, or when they did, when they were younger, when I told them the story, when they would get made fun of at school for something, they would remember that story and they behave differently. So like, if you know, somebody made fun of them. Well, your, your, your pants are too high. You should wear them, you know, where they're hanging off of your butt or the opposite, or your pants are too short, or they're too long or whatever's the fashion, you know, instead of, succumbing to the pressure instead of succumbing to, Oh, my, my, my pants aren't, aren't, are too high. I should pull them down more. They would just pull them up further. Oh, how about this? Is this better? Oh no. Well, how about this? And they then have them up around their neck, like Urkel or something, right? Like they just, they would just keep doing the opposite of what they were getting me fun of until their tormentor would just get frustrated and walk away. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they, they work (laughs) now because I could never give them specific advice for what to do in all those situations. But you tell somebody a story and it gives them ideas for situations that you could never predict would happen.
0: There are so many things I love about that story. I mean, I think your dad is a really cool dude, by the way. I mean, it's just brilliant to listen to your stories about him. The key thing here is, and let's come back for a moment to the actual leadership theme as well. You could apply these kinds of stories from everyday life easily into the workspace, because they have relevance there, like everywhere else. And as, as a coach and trainer who works particularly at the moment in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, what effect would those stories have on the understanding of the impact certain opinions of yours and how you express them could have, and how you switch, uh, how to switch our thinking and our approach and our attitude? And that not in a telling-off way, but in a very human, understanding, inspirational, and I can't find all the other words, why?
1: Yeah. So you you mean specifically in the diversity Mm. and inclusion space?
0: In any space. Just those two examples were brilliant examples for, for example, diversity and uh, inclusion. Mm. But you could bring them in to any space that's work-related. But they come from your personal life.
1: Yes. And, and sometimes, sometimes people will ask me, so in, you know, in a class I'm teaching, so is this supposed to be a work story or a personal story? And my answer mm-hmm. is it should be both yeah. at the same time, the things that happen to you at work are personal, but they're also work related. So, so it's what I'm, don't want them to try and tell stories about is like a case study of, Oh, well, you know, the company did this and the company did that and our yeah. sales did this and our brand, lo- you know, I mean, those are case studies stories are about people and things that happen to people and anything that happens to you at work or happens to somebody else at work is both a work story and a personal story. Right? So if, if we just, if you want to continue the the theme of diversity and inclusion, I'll tell you one of the uh, stories in uh, my first book, there's a whole chapter on diversity and inclusion stories. And one of them is about a guy named Bracken Darrell, who uh, is the CEO today of uh, Logitech or Logitech, I think. Yeah. I think computer peripherals and stuff. And in one of his early jobs at a different company, he was in a department of three people. It was him and he's a white male. There was also a white female. And then there was an African-American male. And that was, th- that was the entire department. And they had a boss who happened to be a, a white male. And uh, Bracken just thought the world of the boss. He, he's a, a great boss, a great leader. He's also, but he has very progressive views, a very worldly kind of guy. He's always wants everything to, you know, everybody to feel equally treated. And he always tries to create an, an inclusive you know, environment. And so Bracken just thought this is the kind of leader I want to be when I, you know, grow up and he's having, he's telling this to the guy at lunch one day, who's the African-American male in that department. And as he's telling him how great he thinks the boss is, the guy's like, yeah, you and I don't see things the same. And he's like, Oh, wh- 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 why, why is that? And the guy explained to him, he said, you know, Here's what I see. (laughs) I see the boss come over to our little bullpen. He goes to your desk first. He pats you on the back. You guys talk about the weekend and the football games and the whatever. And you guys have this great conversation like your old pals. And you look like you have this great rapport. Uh, And then he goes over to the lady, whatever her name is, to her desk. And he he asks her, uh, hey, how's your husband? How are you kids? You know, and thinks he's relating to her, you know, but notice that he's only relating to her in her role as a wife and mother, but not her role as the whatever marketing leader or whatever work role is. Yeah. And he he comes over to mine and he says, uh, hey, Dave, how you doing? (laughs) And that's all he's got. Do you think that I think that our playing field is level? Like, I know he's trying, but you two carry on like your brothers. And with her, he carries on but he clearly only values her in her feminine role of mother and wife of somebody else and with me he doesn't even have that to relate to so you know that just opened bracken's eyes to wow i like it people have different experiences the same thing can happen in front of different people yeah. and different people will feel it it will impact them they will view the exact same behaviors very differently because bracken saw that and saw, oh look he's engaging all of us equally but that's not what the other guy felt Mm. so those kind of stories can help people realize what it's like to experience work from somebody else's perspective and those are great stories to share to help people value diversity and inclusion better and to help them empathize with what it's like to not look like you (laughs) in in the with the workplace
0: and they actually encourage you it just did it to me to pause for a moment. And I said it before, to let the story sink in and to actually reflect up on it and how often you may be behaving in for you a very ordinary day-to-day way without necessarily thinking what impact that behavior has on others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we are approaching the end of this really, truly amazing conversation, I'm, I'm loving it. And I feel really kind of energized right now. Can you tell us, where people can find out more about your courses that you refer to, your books in particular, and how they can learn more about yeah, impactful storytelling.
1: Yeah, certainly, thank you. So, Best place is probably my website. There are links to all those things there. So it's leadwithastory.com, which is just the title of my first book. So I, I never got more creative with uh, website titles after that. So yeah, le- leadwithastory.com. Thank you so much.
0: One last top tip that you wanna leave with the audience.
1: I'd probably go back to the, the early one of uh, treat storytelling like a real skill set that is learnable. Don't just think, oh, it's important. I should start telling more stories because you may not be very good at it yet. So you don't want to practice something until you're good at it. Go learn it. You know, like I said, read a book, watch a video, take a class, whatever, then go practice So treat it just like any other leadership skill you want to have.
0: You know what? I shall take some time out now and tell a story to my little boy. I'm really up for it. Thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your wonderful stories here with us, with the audience. We are going to publish all uh, of the links, obviously, as well in the show notes. So please stay tuned. Thank you. Have a lovely remaining day. And I'm pretty sure we will hear and read more of you in the near future. Bye, Paul. Thanks for having me. And to everybody else, stay safe, stay healthy and enjoy your storytelling skills. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music or on my website, com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.